message with the illustrations that were provided on the screens that day. And that is a complimentary message to this one that I'm bringing you this morning. The inner circle is a place that, in my approach this morning, you would want to be. There might be some inner circles that you might not want to be a part of. I know there's some I wouldn't want to be a part of. But the inner circle of God is a place that I want to be. I don't know why the Lord chose certain men to do certain things. Ladies, when I say men, I'm just old-fashioned enough not to be politically correct and always say men or women. There was a time when you used the word men and it was generic. It meant everybody. It still does to me. Just so you know. I'm not trying to leave you out. So that was why God chose certain men, and he did choose women throughout the New Testament. For certain callings and certain positions and certain ministries, I do not know, except that God is sovereign, and he makes his own decisions, and he doesn't have to consult me before he does make his decisions. I don't know why God chose Peter, James, and John on three separate occasions to give them particular attention and, the, and, and blessing and favor. He had some wonderful disciples. Many of them we know very little about. If I call the name of some of them, you might, you might not know whether they were an apostle or not. But he had 12. And I've never seen a satisfactory explanation as to why on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the bedroom of Jairus' daughter, whom the servants reported she had died, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus particularly singled out and called Peter, James, and John to come into those places with him. I'm sure the other apostles were present, but he singled out those three men Anything that I would tell you as to why Jesus did that would be speculation. He may have done it for this reason. He may have done it for that reason. I could give you some reasons he may have done it, but it would all be just what might have been his purpose. I could say he had a great calling for these three men for the future, and and they needed to be prepared for it. I could also say they might have been weaker than the other apostles and maybe needed more help than the others. You could prove either one. Peter went on to a great ministry. It was through him that the message was first taken to the Gentiles when he had the household of Cornelius, before Paul ever became involved in preaching and teaching to the Gentiles. Peter was in the household of Cornelius. And Peter had a great, great ministry later on throughout the New Testament. Wrote two of the epistles uh, in the New Testament. And John certainly had a great furthering ministry. He went on to write the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos and lived into his 90s. And he wrote the gospel that bears his name and three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So he had, a, he had an extended ministry. That, it, it could be that God was supporting that. Then James comes in, and the only thing I can say about James is that uh, he was beheaded just before Peter was arrested and put in jail, and Peter was delivered. James, the brother of John, who very clearly identified, James was slain. His head was cut off by Herod in the very early days of the church. 
so it doesn't stand up that all three of them had extended lengthy ministries. So I'm going to confess to you this morning that there's some things I just don't know. I don't want to disappoint you. <laughs> but I'm willing to say what I don't know, and this is one of those things. But I will tell you this. We may not know what it was specifically and totally with, with total accuracy, but God had a purpose in doing that. And it could be that there's a message to you and me that we have an opportunity to draw close to God as close as we would choose to be. Just as close as our desire would be to bring us into the very presence of the living God, we have opportunities that everybody may not take advantage of. I don't know whether the Lord asked some of the others if they wanted to climb up that Mount of Transfiguration or not. Maybe they didn't want to make the climb. I don't know. But I do know that God brought these three men, and because they were in his presence, they received great special blessings. Now, this doesn't diminish any of the other apostles, I don't think. You know, um, um, this is uh, well known who all the apostles were, well known if you read the Bible. The book of Matthew clearly defines every one of them. But Matthew is mentioned very little in the scriptures. There's a gospel that bears his name. That's a great contribution. The only other time he's actually mentioned, however, is when he was called from the tax collector's table. And there are others who were hardly ever mentioned at all. Bartholomew, he actually was an apostle. You don't want to hear his name. It's just one time in the gospels. And didn't, but I will say this. In the book of Acts, when it lists all the people who were in the upper room, when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit fell, all of the 11 remaining apostles were there, named one by one in the upper room. So they did not miss out on the great fullness of the blessing of God when he inaugurated his church and launched the great ministry of the gospel in the world. They were there to become a part of it in the very beginning. They didn't miss that. I don't want to suggest to you that because they were not a part of the, the inner circle with the three, that they missed great blessings from God. Apparently they did not, and they went on to do great things for the Lord, although a lot of it is not recorded because there's just not enough room to make a record of all that happened. So that would be true of, of James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less, or Thaddeus, whose name you may not know. Simon the Zealot was an apostle. And... Uh, so was Jesus carrying. So, Jesus always had a purpose. He didn't always explain it in detail. He just said, follow me, trust me, believe me, and you will be blessed and rewarded and honored and led by the Holy Spirit. And that's what he did. Now, I'm talking about the inner circle as something that's kind of a mystery because I'm telling you these why he chose those three, we don't really know. We're not really sure about it. So there's some things about that we don't know. But that's not, there, there, is, a, there is an inner circle that we are called into, that every person, by your own choice, not by demand, not by command, not by requirement, but by your own personal choice, there's an inner circle into which you can enter for the fullness of the blessings and the power of God in your life. You can stay on the outer edge 
and walk around the fringe of your Christian life, if that's what you choose to do. Or you can constantly move toward the center, as I explained to you in my message on the secret place. You can constantly move toward the center and get closer and closer, step by step, movement by movement, by act by act with God. You can make your choice as to where you want to stand with God. So the inner circle is available, not just to Peter, James, and John, not just to the apostle, not just to the apostle Paul, who was born out of season as an apostle, he said, and who actually saw the Lord Jesus, not just for those men, not just for great stalwarts of the Christian faith who have come along, but this inner circle, I'm going to say this to you very carefully because I want you to hear me, and I want to prepare you for what I'm really going to tell you next. This inner circle is available to every single child of God. And beyond that, it is available to anyone here today who is not yet a child of God by the new birth. You just have to take the right steps, move in the right direction, and when you do, God will lead you into the inner circle of his divine, personal, glorious presence that is the place of great victory for your life. I want you to know that this is not some esoteric place that you can never understand, that it's shrouded and surrounded in mystery, so it will never come clear to you and you'll never know when you're there. There's something in the Protestant faith. It's called the priesthood of all believers. And the message of that is that Jesus provided a way for every single child of God, every single believer, to be his own priest with God. He clearly defines that Jesus is the high priest, looking back at the Old Testament symbolism of the priesthood. Jesus is the high priest, but then every believer, all of his offspring, that includes every person born again into the kingdom of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, Every believer is then his own priest to God. Nobody, nobody needs a mediator between him and God. You don't need anybody to tell you that your sins are forgiven. You don't need anybody to tell you that if you do this, you'll have your sins forgiven. There's nothing wrong with communication. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying having somebody stand between you and God so that you can't get there except going through that person. That is not scriptural. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the high priest. And you have your own personal access to the living God. You don't have to come through me. You don't have to come through anybody else here. You can come directly into the very presence of the living God, and I'm going to show you how that is true. I'm going to show you how you can do that and how the Scripture makes it clear what the plan is for you to move into the inner circle of the glory of God. Wouldn't you want to be there? That's where I want to live. That's where I want to live. And so I'm going to show you from the Old Testament tabernacle an illustration that will point this out. You try, and I'm going to ask you that if you're not really, really familiar already with the Old Testament tabernacle, which was really the pattern for the Herod's temple of the latest one built in the New Testament. Well, the interior was all the same. If 
you're not really, really familiar with that, you need to follow me step by step very carefully. So if you've got your cell phone hidden down there by your side, you know, turn it off. Get your mind on something else besides what you're going to have for lunch when you get out of here today. Stop worrying about whether I'm going to finish on time or not. probably won't. Forget all that and start listening really carefully now to what I'm going to tell you. So the Old Testament tabernacle is a pattern for bringing us to God. It shows us how to come to God. The New Testament, not, not the New Testament, but the temple that stood in the New Testament shows the very same thing because the furnishings were the same inside the holy places of worship as they were in the Old Testament tabernacles. But having said that, this is the way the tabernacle was laid out. The first thing you had to do when you came in from the outer circle was to pass by the brazen altar. This is something like what the brazen altar looked like. On this altar, they offered sacrifices that were always blood sacrifices. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. Blood was shed from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden to provide atonement and forgiveness for sins. When Adam and Eve were covered with the skins of an animal, it was, they weren't covered with vegetable leaves. They were covered with the skins of an animal. So an animal had to be slain. Blood had to be shed. And later on, he, God instituted a plan throughout the Old Testament where sacrifices were offered on the brazen altar. When you walked into the temple, that was the outer court, and the first piece of the furnishing that you saw was this right here, this brazen altar where the slain sacrifice was taken and burned on that altar as a sacrifice for sin. Now, did that... Expiate sin, did that, did, 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 that, uh, did, did that take care of the sin? It took care of it with anticipation by faith that God was going to offer his final sacrifice that would hold up forever. If it took care of it, they wouldn't have to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. So it, it was a symbol that represented the blood of Jesus. So here's, so here's where it starts. I don't think I'm showing you very much right here, but... Um, but somewhere, but you're seeing where the, I just need to go on to the second one, and, and that'll begin to fill out what I'm trying to say. So you come by the brazen altar. You come by the brazen altar, and the next thing is called the laver of washing. It's just a little bowl, and there's still water in it, and they came in and they rinsed themselves. It was a symbol. They cleansed themselves. And that was called the laver of washing because, because, when you come by the altar of salvation, which is the burnt offering, where the blood is shed, the next step is to cleanse yourself in the Word of God. And the Bible makes it very clear that from that point on, from the time that we accept the sacrifice of Christ, represented by that sacrifice on the brazen altar, by the time we accept the sacrifice of Jesus for our salvation and our lives, the next step is we're to move forward in living with God, developing with the Lord, walking with Him, cleansing ourselves by the Word of God. This is what the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 5, 26. What God wants for the church, this is what God wants for His church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's Word. Washed in the water and the cleansing of God's Word. So that item right there is the second thing that we see as we step forward in the in the illustration of the cross. So there's the second thing. The next thing involves, after the sacrifice and receiving Jesus, after walking in the Word and cleansing, the next thing is we are provided with worship at the altar, the golden altar of incense. Here they brought incense, which is a perfume, an aromatic, 
offering and, and, and usually has some, not only aroma, but usually has some smoke and, 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 and symbolism to it. And on that altar of incense, they offered the incense that they burned and that provided the aroma and the, and the, and the smoke that came from it. All of that was a sign of worshiping God. The incense was a, was a, a, was a representation of, a symbol of our worship to God. So that, that fits right into the next step. Show me that cross. So they were, were moving right. One step, second step, third step is the altar of incense. They had to stop at the altar of worship. Now, all of this is important because it lays out in the very order. The first thing is the brazen altar. That's where the blood was sacrificed. That represented the death of Jesus on the cross. And, friend, you can't get anywhere with God. Listen now. You can't get anywhere with God unless you pass by this place right here. I don't mean literally where these paths are. I'm talking about this as an altar. You can't get anywhere with God until you pass by this altar. This altar is representative of what Jesus did for us. The Bible says that his cross is an altar for us. We have an altar, the Bible says, that does not fit the Old Testament Levitical order. Because it isn't an altar of burnt sacrifice, it's an offering of shed blood. And that offering is the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the brazen altar. Then we move through the cleansing of his word. Then we worship him, and the incense rises, and the sweet aroma of God's presence fills our lives. Fills us with his presence and his power and his glory. So he becomes real, more real, and more real, and more real to us every single day of our lives. That altar of incense is what... Paul spoke of when he wrote to the Ephesians. And he said in five, chapter 5, verse 2, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering, he gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God, slain for you, killed, sacrificed for us, so that he became a sweet fragrance. The sweet fragrance of Jesus' presence comes because we pass by the altar of the cross. We've come through the cross. We've come through the cross. We've come through the labor. We've come through the word. We've come through the cleansing. We've stepped through his truth. And we've come to the place of worship. And we bow down in worship and acknowledge him fully and wholly and totally for who he is. And then the glory of God begins to fill the place, not only with the with the evidence of the incense, with the aroma of the incense, with the glory of his presence and power, the whole place being filled. And then the next thing is an opening into the inner circle. The next place and the next item. This is called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the last piece of furnishing, and it was on the inside the most holy place in the temple. First you came into the outer court. Then you came into the holy place. And then you came into the most holy place, or the holy of holies it's sometimes called. However, to get to that Ark of the Covenant was a very, very restrictive thing. Only the high priest ever saw the Ark of the Covenant. Between the holy place... I'm going to ask you this. Go ahead and let me see the cross, and then I can show it a little bit better, maybe. Between the holy place and 
a laser is just too weak. You see it on the, you see what I'm seeing right here? You see a little red dot right there? Okay, between the holy place and the most holy place, right across here, there was a curtain. I'm not doing it straight, but right between those, right, you see where I'm doing that red mark? There was a curtain right there called the veil. And this veil was 60 feet wide, 40 feet high, at least four inches thick, and it was woven as a, as a, as a strong tapestry. It was gold and symbolism woven into the veil. That veil shut off the holy of holies from the holy place. It closed off because, you see, the Ark of the Covenant was the very presence of God, the very direct, immediate presence, power, glory of God. That Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred thing in the worship of Israel through all their years. They guarded the Ark of the Covenant. It was symbolic of God's presence to them, and God had that closed off in the Holy of Holies, so nobody could go in there. That veil shut it off, and the veil didn't have an opening in it. It wasn't a curtain that you could pull a rod that opened up. It had no opening in it. it had no access. It just completely shut off and closed off the Holy of Holies from all the rest from the holy place. So you could, the, the priest could only go past the labor of washing. The Levitical priest could go to the Next step, the altar of incense. And in that holy place, the, all the priests of the tribe of Levi took their order, and in their turn, they followed through the rituals and performed the worship ceremonies for Israel in the holy place. But in the most holy place, at the very top where the Ark of the Covenant is, only the high priest could go in there. And he could go in there only one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. If he went in any other time, the judgment was he'd be struck dead because he'd be presuming on the presence and the grace and the mercy of God. So he could only go, he could only go one time of year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. To go in there, he had to offer the blood of an animal for himself to cover his own sins, and the blood of an animal to cover the sins of all of Israel. And all the sacrifices they had offered on the brazen altar may have left out some things. So that one time of the year was to cover everything that had not been covered through the year. And the high priest could go in there only once a year on the Day of Atonement. It had to be at the exact time, right place. It had to be under the right procedures. It had to be dressed in the right garments to go in there. And there's so much symbolism in the tabernacle. I don't have time to, by any means to talk about all of it. I'm just giving you one pathway about it today to show you the way into the inner circle. That's all I'm trying to do today. Sometime I'll go into more of it, maybe. But that veil that separated the Holy of Holies could not be penetrated. It had no opening to go in. So when the high priest went in, once he is what he had to do, had to dress himself in the right garments, had to shed blood for his own sins, because he too was a sinner, had to shed blood for the sins of the people, and he had to take that blood to go inside and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. This is how he had to go in. He had to get to the corner, to the lower corner of that veil, and be able to lift up that corner and, and pick up the corner of it and then squeeze in under that and get in on the inside of that veil so that he was then standing in the Holy of Holies. Why did he have to do it that way? Because he had no right to be there. He had no entrance to it. It was very restrictive. Only God could give somebody right to come there. Because 
because God had, God had declared that the soul that sins it shall die. Sin is going to be judged. Sin cannot enter into the presence of God. It was set apart completely. But all of this, all of this, every bit of this spoke of the cross of Jesus. That's why all of this tabernacle furniture is in the form of a cross. If you, if you, and we'll show the other part right now. I'm not talking about the altar of the golden candlestick, the golden candelabra. And over on the right side is the table of showbread. I'm not talking about those as much. Just let that go for now. I just want you to see how the furniture of the tabernacle laid out in the picture of a perfect picture of a cross. And it was intended that way because that spoke of the cross of Jesus. Now, here's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, when he became the effective Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world so that his his blood covered the sins of the world, that was the brazen altar. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says one of the things that happened, one of the six miracles that happened while Jesus was dying on the cross, at the point of his death, when he died, the veil in the temple, that 60 by 40 by 4 inch thick veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else, that veil in the temple was torn into, the Bible says, from the top to the bottom. Not, not from the bottom where man might have done it, from the top where no man could reach it. Four inches thick, too thick for man to do it. But by the miracle hand of God, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil in the temple was rent torn open from the top to the bottom and it fell aside and everybody could then see everybody could then see the Ark of the Covenant the Holy of Holies because Jesus opened the way for everybody every believing child of God to come by the brazen altar of sacrifice to cleanse himself in the word of God to worship God in the sweet aroma of God's presence and then at the Ark of the Covenant at that great glorious place of God's presence to live and to dwell in the inner circle in the victory of God's presence and power forever. That's your place. That's your privilege. That's where you can live. That's where you can live. Because nobody, no priest, no priest of the Levitical order, no priest of the Old Testament, no priest of the New Testament, no... I know exactly what I want to say, but I don't want to be pejorative. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about anybody's faith today. I'm just talking about what the Bible says is true. Okay? So you, you just have to take this, and if you want to sit down with me, and I'll show it to you how this is true. Nobody can stand between you and that altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant where your sins are totally covered and forgiven and you're a child of God. Nobody can take that place. Nobody can stand between you and that. that when that veil in the temple was opened, it made it available for every single believer to go through that torn veil into the very presence of the living God where you can live in his presence forever and enjoy the glory and the power and the presence of the Lord and his victory in your life. That's the inner circle today for the child of God. Better than being with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Better than being with Jesus in the bedroom of Jairus' daughter. Better than being with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now you're in his presence 24-7, day and night, all the time that you want to be. You can be and live in the very presence of the living God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because Jesus has opened the way. That could only happen by the shedding of the blood of Jesus, not by the shedding of the blood of any other. This is what the Bible says about it. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 
Listen, this is the Bible now. Paul writing to the Hebrews, I believe it was Paul. We can now boldly enter into God's presence. The inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Jesus, who went before us, has entered now by his blood. The Bible says that he traveled to the very throne of God the Father. And when he arrived there, he presented his blood as the offering of sin for all the world. So that there could be forgiveness for anybody who comes to Jesus and calls on his name for salvation. He traveled into the heavenly holy of holies, of which this earthly holy of holies is a symbol. And there he presented his blood as a sacrifice of sin forever. That's why the scripture says that he went into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He went there on our behalf and made it possible for us to enter where he has gone before us. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the book of Hebrews is a book of superiority. The New Testament superior to the Old Testament. The New Covenant superior to the Old Covenant. Christ's blood superior to the blood shed by animals. It's a book of superiority all the way through. And here's what he's saying. Brothers, now, now, now we have confidence. What is our confidence? Our confidence is understanding the word of God and the teaching of God's word and the rending of that veil. Our confidence is that Jesus has opened the way for us to come into the very presence of the Father. So we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Under the Old Testament, you couldn't do that. You couldn't enter that. You'd have died. But then when Jesus died on the cross and that veil was rent, he gave us confidence because we believe him. He gave us confidence to enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, the inner circle. To come into the inner place by the blood of Jesus. And then he said, by a new and living way. Not by the old way of of blood sacrifices on the brazen altar. By a new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain. That is to say his body. This is what it says. Opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. That veil was representing his body. When his body was torn on the cross, the veil was torn in the temple and opened up the way through the body, bloodshed, open veil of the torn body of Jesus, tearing that veil open for us to walk in to the Holy of Holies, walk into the inner place that God has chosen for us. So, the next thing he says then, in light of all of this, with this assurance, with this knowledge, with this understanding, he says to the Hebrews, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The enemy will challenge you at the brazen altar. And he will tell you it's foolish for you to believe that somebody died in your behalf. It's foolish in the wisdom of the world. But the wisdom of God is greater. The enemy will challenge you at the labor of washing. What does this word have to do with you? This is 2,000 years old or more. What does it matter now in today's world? Who cares? He'll tell you. But I want to tell you, my friends, God wrote a book, 
And that book is the Bible. <laughs> and God's word in the Bible is true. Jesus died for you and me. As simple as that is, he died for us. Hallelujah. He'll try to stop you at that altar of incense. Why do you come and worship God? You can't even see him. When you talk to him, you're just talking to the air. He doesn't hear you. How can he hear you in all these other multiple thousands of people that are talking to him all the time? How can he hear you? You see, he's such a deceiver. And the thing about it is he tells such stupid lies. Because there's an answer to every lie he tells. There's an answer to every lie he tells. I believe. <laughs> I believe. I believe in Christ my Savior. I believe in the Word of God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe he died for me. I believe in the resurrection. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. And no matter what the devil says, I still believe. Glory to God. Call me old-fashioned. That's all right. I don't care. Call me whatever you want to call me as long as you don't call me a sinner. I'm saved by grace. <laughs> Glory to God. And so are you if you put your faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter what the devil tells you. So are you if you've got your faith in Jesus. Now, some of you wonder about it. And I'm telling you, you ought, your doubts ought to be settled. Because you believe that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Hallelujah. That's the pure, unadulterated truth of the word of God. And it doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the devil says. It doesn't matter what the modern church says. It doesn't matter what politicians say. It doesn't matter what the newspapers say. It doesn't matter what television reporters say. It doesn't matter what radio broadcasters say. It does not matter. God's Word is true. God's Word is true. Hallelujah. Glory to God. His Word is true. Glory to His name. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Stand with me, please, and bow your heads in prayer.